0: Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan from Marist College, and I'm one of the channel's new co-hosts. Today, we will talk with Mark Edward Ruff. He is an accomplished scholar of German Catholicism and author of several major books and articles on the subject. He is professor of history at St. Louis University. I'm particularly excited to have Mark on the show today because we both research in the same subfield of German religious history. And we share the same hometown of Buffalo, New York. Today, we will discuss his most recent book entitled The Battle for the Catholic Past in Germany, 1945 to 1980, published with Cambridge University Press in 2017. Mark, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in German Studies.
1: Thank you very much, Michael.
0: So, um, I thought that we could start the interview today in traditional New Books fashion uh, by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, and by that, I mean a little bit about your biography, your educational background, your, pre- your work in the field previous to writing this book.
1: Thank you. I think I can talk a little bit about how I became interested in the field. Uh, and as you mentioned, I like you, I come from the Buffalo, New York area. My entire family is German. Um, I am second or third generation, depending on how you count it. Um, There was a lot of going back and forth in the family between Germany and the United States. The family consisted on both sides of Lutheran ministers, which plays a role in this story. And most were ministers in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, which is the more conservative branch of American Lutheranism. And they were the descendants of the old Lutherans in Germany, so the Alt-Lutheraner, who refused to take part in a, the so-called Prussian Union. This was a forced merger of the Reformed and the Lutheran churches um, in the state of Prussia starting in the teens, And... I got interested in German history um, because, first of all, like most people who study history, I always loved it, and I grew up reading about the Second World War, reading about reading about the American Revolution, and my interest just started there. But part of what piqued my interest was recounting my own family stories um, from the German side of my family during the 1930s and the 1940s. And my father had gone to Germany in 1983 and then established ties or reestablished ties with family members on both sides and discovered in the course of this some very interesting stories about the family. And on my father's side, he came from um, the Baden region, or the family came from there, and he met one of his aunts who was crippled, and she had been thrown off of a train by an SS man um, in, I believe it was in the early 1940s, and her father had actually been incarcerated in Dachau because they were both attempting to smuggle Jews across the border into Switzerland. And my mother's side of the family, on the other hand, it was the exact opposite story. Um, I've met an uncle, very close relation to him, who had been a tank commander in the Second World War. Um, very conservative um, uncle, by no means a Nazi, but his younger brother, who perished in the war, he had actually been a, what you would classify as a hardcore Nazi. Um, he was eight years younger than the uncle whom I knew well. He came of age in the late 20s, early 1930s, and he had established a Hitler shrine in his backyard. <laughs>
0: So you have a really mixed mixed background there, coming from both uh, um, but both sides.
1: Both sides, exactly the same religious and social background. So it was, they'd say in German, the classic Bildungsburger to But yet they had opposite responses to National Socialism. So my father came back. This was 1983. He had gone over for the 500th anniversary of the uh, Martin Luther's birth, and he actually been in East Germany. Came back and started regaling me with these stories, and which got me really interested um, in studying German history. And so I was learning German at the time, had a couple of years in high school, and then I went to study at the University of Buffalo, um, which was the university in my hometown. And they happened to have two very distinguished historians, of both German historians in the department at the time. One. Was was William Sheridan Allen, or Bill Allen, who is famous for his book that he wrote in the 1960s called The Nazi Seizure of Power as Reflections on a Small Town, uh, Northeim as it turns out. And then the other one, who the other professor who had a very strong influence on me was Georg Iggers, the distinguished intellectual historian, pioneer of um, the study of historiography, And Iggers himself had come over from Germany in 1939. He was, I believe, 16 years old, if my memory is correct, and he was a German Jewish refugee from Hamburg. And he went to study at the University of Chicago, taught in Arkansas, but then eventually found his way to the University of Buffalo, where he taught me and dozens of others, and I should really like to pay my thanks to him. He just passed away about two months ago and was just one of the most wonderful, kind persons that one could have possibly come into contact with, and he was the inspiration for me to go on to graduate school.
0: Yeah, Mark, um, that's uh, really interesting. It tells you how uh, Buffalo is such a big, small town. Uh, George Iggers um, lived right around the block from my family. And um, my father uh, also studied under him when he was in graduate school at the University of Buffalo. So it's a small world.
1: 100 Ivyhurst Drive I believe was his address so uh, yeah so he urged me to, to go to graduate school and I went to study with Volker Berkan at Brown University who just the other week turned 80 years um, turned 80 years of age and there was a wonderful write up in some of the German newspapers on uh, on the occasion of his 80th birthday and he too was a really remarkable wonderful advisor uh, all of his students were pursuing different topics he never imposed his own agenda, his own topics on students, and he was supportive of them regardless whether they were writing on diplomatic history, in my case, the history of the Catholic Church, or for others, social history, the history of the SPD, the history of industrialists or gender history. He supported them all equally, um, which is really to his credit and I think fairly unusual um, in this case. So That's great, Mark. Uh, did you want to say
0: anything about um, any of the work that you've done in the field prior to writing this book?
1: Yes, it would. Um, while in graduate school, I, in the middle of it, like most American graduate students, I went over to Germany for, in this case, for two full years, to do research on my dissertation. And I went over and wrote a research dissertation. I think in about two dozen archives, looking at questions of. Catholic youth organizations. Sounds like a terribly obscure topic, but I was using these to look at larger questions of secularization, the erosion of a Catholic subculture after 1945, and looking above all for lines of continuity between the Third Reich and the post-45 era. And it was actually in the process of doing the research for this book. Actually, just as I started the work, it's actually where the kind of the idea for the second project um, took shape. And it's a book that we're going to be talking about today, The Battle for the Catholic Past. And if I could recount a story, this happened at the very start of my work. I hadn't settled on a definite topic yet. I hadn't settled on the topic of Catholic youth, and I was, like many American graduate students, a little bit floundering trying to find a topic. So I had a couple ideas in mind, and so I was told to show up at one of the major diocesan archives um, in Germany. This is the Historisches Archiv des Artsbistums Köln, or the Historical Archive for the Archdiocese of Cologne. And I showed up as a 24-year-old American graduate student and was immediately sent in to speak with one of the head archivists. And he looked at me and was kind of skeptical when he looked at me, asked me what I wanted to write about. And I said, I'm thinking about writing about either Catholic schools or the Catholic youth um, after 1945, and he furrowed his brow. And he said, you know, about 20 years ago, he said this with a very thick Cologne accent. Um, he was from the re- from the region. About 20 years ago, we had an American journalist named Frederick Spotts who came by, and he misused our holdings. And I just want to make sure that you are not going to be following in his tradition. And Frederick Spatz was indeed a journalist, and he had written a book called The Churches and Politics uh, in post 45 Germany. And the book was. I would say, moderately critical of the Catholic Church, particularly on its conduct regarding denazification, war crimes, trials. Uh, But it also painted a picture that was looking at the ties between politics and the Catholic Church, um, especially the Church's role in the CDU uh, with the Christian Democratic Party, which is... Of course, West Germany is one of its leading parties. So this got me. My interest, Pete, here I was, this naive 24-year-old American graduate student. Of course, I had read Spott's book, but I didn't realize it was still – he was still something of a bête noire um, for many in Germany. And so that certainly aroused my attention. And then I went over, and while I was there, I was doing research and got to know many of the people who work in the Kommission für Zeitgeschichte, the Association for Contemporary History, which is one of the nexuses for the, the history of German Catholicism in the 19th and 20th centuries. And it was really a first-rate network of scholars. And the Kommission für Zeitgeschichte um, welcomed me um, into their archives and uh, and was able to work closely with some of their scholars who were working there. And it was founded in 1962, um, right as some of these battles for the Catholic past were taking shape. So while I was there, I was looking at the the history. and There hadn't been an official history of of the association that had been written. Um, There were some reminiscences that I was looking at, and when I was talking with people there, it became pretty clear that many saw their mission as the defense of the church against what they regarded as unwarranted attacks. And of course, this was the mid to late 1990s by this point, when there was a wave of publications that was starting to come forth that was extremely critical of the Catholic Church's conduct during the Second World War. Um, So John Cornwall's book was coming out, uh, and there was a whole wave of publications coming in the late 1990s. Goldhagen came out with another book, I believe, I think it was 2002. Um, so quite a number of publications that were reigniting these wars over the Catholic Church's past that had broken out in the 1960s. And there was obviously a very defensive tone um, in the writings of some of the apologists um, for the church who were, who were operating in Germany at the time and also on this side of the Atlantic. So that attracted my attention. But the, the part that really Turned my interest towards this topic was something that took place under the radar screen. And if you look at the battles about the churches, Catholic churches passed both in the 60s and the 90s, these were generating international headlines. There were documentaries in the case of the Hohuts play, the deputy which accused Pope Pius XII of maintaining a silence um, in the face of the Holocaust. There were actually protests, there were demonstrations, there were riots, there were even some bombings um, in Rome um, in the mid-1960s. And what struck me was at this time in the mid to late 90s there was a wave of publications about the conduct of the Protestant churches plural, on the 28 Protestant state churches and these were publications that were fairly critical in fact extremely critical of the Protestant churches conduct and this was something that was completely new to me because I had grown up as the son of a Lutheran minister, and I grew up hearing the stories of the heroic, allegedly heroic resistance of the Protestant churches against the Third Reich. So I grew up hearing the stories of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Martin Niemöller was somebody uh, who was quoted widely. There's this quote that's attributed to him. There are several number of versions of it. First, they came for the communists, but I was not, the common, I'm not a communist, so I did nothing. So I grew up with this. And so what was coming out of the scholarship at the time from people like Bob Erickson and many others was a much more critical portrait. And so the question occurred to me, why has have the controversies about the Protestant Church's past to this day been so much more under the radar screen? Why did they never gain the same degree of public attention that the controversies about the Catholic Church's past did? When this scholarship was made pretty clear, I think on the whole, the Protestant churches, with some notable exceptions, probably, I shouldn't say probably, indeed, collaborated more and resisted less than the Catholic Church.
0: Excuse me, that was um, something that really uh, struck me about your introduction and impressed me about the way you framed the book uh, right from the start. And uh, I was really um, sort of fascinated by that uh, You know, that observation is a point of departure. um, That was, uh, you know, one of the things that really drew me into the book when I first started reading it. So I I am curious to hear more, um, you know, about why it was, why, why was it that this Catholic minority found it in the sort of in the crosshairs of controversy over its relationship with Hitler's regime, rather than the Protestants?
1: Yeah, and that is, that's is—that's the leading question. The light fog is for the entire book, and I'm, I'm sure there are some who will disagree with the way that I framed um, this particular case, but if you look at some of the statistics, uh, in the case of the Protestant churches, probably between about 10 to 20% of Protestant clergy joined the Nazi party. When I was looking at the denazification records of the State, of, State Church of Bremen, there was over 50% of Protestant clergy that had to be denazified. And so that, again, leads me to the major... In the case of the Catholic Church, it was less than 1% of the priests, the so-called brown priests, who had to undergo denazification. So that's the leading question. And when I asked some colleagues, uh, friends, some who were involved in the field this question, I got a series of answers that I found profoundly unsatisfying. And the first answer that I routinely received... Was, and I received this also from many Catholics, many practicing Catholics. Well, the Catholic Church, even though it was a minority church, has been criticized because, as a centralized hierarchical institution with an international base of support. It could have done more and should have done more because the German Protestant churches—they were there were 28 of them—they were famously disorganized. The Catholic Church had the benefit, the benefits of a very clear-cut hierarchical structure that would have allowed it to have done more. And I found this argument pretty unsatisfying ultimately, um, simply because it, it because it was wedding a moral assumption um, into a historical argument. And another argument that came along routinely, and this is one that I heard from Protestant scholars and from practicing Protestants, well, the Protestants in the fall of 1945 admitted their guilt through the so-called Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt. They admitted that they had not prayed enough, whereas the Catholic Church, they pointed out, had never issued a comparable statement of guilt. And so the focus then on the Catholic Church's sins of commission and omission was the result of the fact that they had yet to really provide a confession and receive absolution. And I found that statement actually remarkably unsatisfying because if you look at the history of the Stuttgart Declaration of Guild, it was signed primarily under duress and especially at the behest of international Protestant ecumenical figures who pointed – who made it pretty clear that if the Protestant church didn't do something, it could jeopardize their standing abroad and possibly could lead to the cutoff or curtailment of some funds coming in at a time when the churches were desperate to find money from abroad to rebuild some of their damaged buildings, to put together their organizations again after all the devastation of the Third Reich and the Second World War. And so this got me thinking further, there has to be something else um, that's going on. And the explanation that I ultimately came up with, and this is the guiding explanation for the book, and it's a very simple one. These, the fixation on the Catholic Church's past was the result of the fact that these were proxy wars. These were proxy wars for something else. And the whole task of the book was to describe what this something else was. What caused these the, this kind of disproportionate or asymmetrical fixation on the Catholic Church's past at the very outset? And that something else was typically the role or rather the perceived role of the Catholic Church in the politics of the Federal Republic. And that's the major argument, is this perceived role of the church in the politics of the early Federal Republic, especially the first two decades, two and a half decades. And it's true, the Catholic Church was still a minority during this time, um, about a f- little over 45% of the population, it was up from about 36% of the population. But for the first time, it was, especially after 1957, it had an un, I should say, Catholic politicians seemed to have an unflinching hold on political power. And, of course, what was new is that they had power in the CDU and in the the CSU. The chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, of course, was a Cologne Catholic, a practicing Catholic. Um, The CDU, although it was officially interconfessional, was primarily dominated by Catholics. Um, Its voters were overwhelmingly Catholic, its leadership was overwhelmingly Catholic, and it also enjoyed the strong, if not vocal, support of many of the bishops in the late 1940s and 1950s.
0: Well, Mark, I think um, those comments really uh, provide our listeners both with, uh, with some great context, both for uh, the major argument of the book, but also um, some major um, context for the, the the politics of the early federal republic uh, with the Christian Democratic Union and the dominance of Conrad Adenauer. And I think um, that provides a, a nice jumping off point for us to look at some of the individual chapters in the book. And in some ways, uh, chapter one, uh, brings us, um, a picture of what things looked like in the late 1940s. Um, in this chapter, you really explore how a lot of, uh, veterans of the so-called church struggles against the third Reich, how they tried to shape the story, uh, of what the church did under national socialist rule, um. And this is really the first of many chapters where you introduce some really very colorful personalities that engage the debate about the church's recent past. Uh, So I was wondering if you could introduce the audience to some of the figures discussed in chapter one and how they positioned or how they tried to position uh, the church's legacy after the war.
1: Yeah, I think there were, that's a really terrific question. I think there were two very colorful personalities who probably did more to, sh- to frame the discussions about the church's past than any other. And the two individuals, and I spent months, actually years, um, looking at both of these figures, and the longer that I looked at them, in some ways the more complex they became. Um, the first was a figure who, to this day, amongst those in Bavaria, who are in their 70s and 80s, is still a fairly well-known figure. This was an auxiliary bishop, or, or bishop from the Archdiocese of Munich and Freising um, by the name of Johannes Neuhäusler. And Neuhäusler, he was a kind of the prototype of your, I guess, your Bavarian Catholic. He came from a small town near Dachau, um, the son of a typical Bavarian kind of farming or peasant family, one of many children, and he did his mother, made his mother really proud by entering the priesthood, and he rose through the ranks remarkably swiftly, and he spent time abroad, and he eventually, by the 1930s, after about 33, 34, became one of the right-hand men of one of the most influential figures in German Catholicism during this time, and this was the Munich Cardinal Michael Faulhaber, And Neuheusler became one of his confidants. And early on in the church struggle, Faulhaber pulled Neuheusler aside and gave him this assignment. And I think Neuheusler realized pretty quickly that this assignment could easily cost him his life. He gave him the assignment of monitoring The persecution of the Catholic Church, not just in his diocese or his archdiocese, but across Germany, with the specific goal of collecting information, collecting data about the persecution of the church, the restrictions, and sending it, however, possible to Rome to the attention of the cardinal secretary of state, who at the time was Eugenio Pacelli, who later gained fame when he became was appointed to um, become Pope Pius XII in 1939. So Neuhoesler's job was to smuggle out documents detailing the church's persecution down to the vatican and he assembled a really colorful cast of figures um, to help him in this task one of his right-hand men was one of the co-founders of this of the csu uh, bavaria joseph miller who is the subject of a book that just came out the other year called church of spies which is detailing all of his the espionage that he was carrying out and he was working closely with Neuheusler. Unfortunately for Neuheusler, he was arrested. Um, he was arrested first in 1933, let go, but he was rearrested in 1941. He was called the, uh, one of the most dangerous men um, uh, by the Gestapo. And he was sent, first of all, to Sachsenhausen, where um, he was brutally mistreated. But then he was surprisingly um, told to pack his clothes and then head back to um, had actually on a in a car, and then they took him down to Dachau, where he was given a status as a protected prisoner, and put in a cell next to Martin Niemöller, one of the founders of the Confessing Church. Um, they put him there. I think they hoped that um, he would be able to persuade Niemöller to convert to Catholicism. And Niemöller had talked about this, and it turns out it was the opposite. Um, Niemöller hung around Neuhorster and another Catholic a long time, and decided, I guess I really am Protestant, and didn't convert. Um, And he was there all the way up until just before the end of the war when he and the... Several hundred other protected prisoners were put on a bus. Um, they were sent down to northern Italy. Um, Südtirol uh, was the region. And they were set to be executed, but it turns out the Gestapo official, who was charged with their execution, committed suicide at the last minute. The Allies were able to come and rescue them. And then Neuhäusler, along with some of the others, was whisked away to um Rome, where he met with Pope Pius XII, but he was also subject to an extensive interrogations by the Americans who were trying to pump him, it seems, for information about some of the Nazi war crimes. I mean, here he was, he was a heroic resistor in many ways, and he had suffered in horrible mistreatment, incarceration in this concentration camp, and I think they were looking for information on some of the crimes that they could use in upcoming war crimes trials, which they were planning. And it turns out that Niemöller did not especially appreciate both. Neither Niemöller nor Neuhoisler appreciated this and this interrogation of the hands of the Americans. And they had a very notorious press conference uh, uh, in Naples, where they were given a whole series of questions by American journalists, asking essentially why hadn't the churches resisted enough? Where was the resistance? And at the same time, Niemöller put his foot in his mouth repeatedly during this interview by saying that the Germans simply were not yet ready for democracy as the Americans were envisioning it. And it appears that Neuheusler concurred um, with Niemöller's sentiment. And so the press around the world, the American press, were running stories with headlines along the lines of, Germany is not yet fit for democracy, Niemöller says. Five other high-ranking uh, survivors and um, clergy agree. This apparently proved to be, it appears, one of the genesis behind the first major documentary, one of the first major documentary histories of the Catholic Church under the Nazi rule. It's a work called Cross and Swastika, which Neuheusler put together in a remarkably short period of time. And in the foreword, there's a foreword there by Foulhopper, but you can read some of the subtext later on, it was clear why he was putting it together. Um, It was not simply to provide an account of the martyrs and of the persecution. It was to provide an answer to allied allegations of German guilt, and especially German collective guilt, for the crimes of the Third Reich. And so he put this together, and he, in it he included a number of uh, the pastoral letters of some of the German bishops showing their resistance. But what's really remarkable about it is if you looked very closely at the documents that he, that he was allegedly uh, copying and, and typing in, he cut out nearly every passage in which some of the bishops were indicating either agreement or sympathy um, with their Nazi overlords. And so it was incredible. Yeah,
0: Yeah, Mark, um, this part of the book really, uh, really interested me. I mean, it just uh, it's, you know, almost shocking that someone devoted to recreating the past would justify, you know, altering the evidence in this sort of way. Uh, Could you could you speak a little bit or expand a little bit more on the mentality that would lead uh, someone like Neuhoysler to do something like
1: that? That's a great question. Um, And, of course, Neuheusler never really admitted to having done it. Uh, I think the reason why he did it, aside from the obvious political purposes, um, having included passages showing either agreement or, in a few cases, sympathy towards the Nazi regime, would have undercut the opposition that he was waging against denazification, but above all against the Allied war crimes trials. And, and it turns out that Neuhose there was one of the German clergy, several high-ranking German clergy who was going to bat for convicted Nazi war criminal after convic- con- convicted Nazi war criminal, including some members of the SS. Um, There's a whole list of people he was trying to support, and I actually found a case where he was doing this as late as the 1960s. I think. Th- I think the other reason why he was doing, and if you look at the purpose of this book is also being pastoral Um, to include a message showing that some of the churchmen had not always been consistent in their opposition to national socialism. I think for him would have been tantamount to challenging the faith of, call it the simple flock, or many of the simple peasants who were members of the church. And I don't think he really wished to upset people's faith that they had placed in the church. Um, and having included some of these statements in his book clearly would have been a challenge um, to the understandings that many had had that the church had been a fount of resistance consistently.
0: Yeah, and um, Mark, I, I think uh, one of the arguments or sub arguments you really push in this chapter, as well as in other parts of this book, is this notion that some of these figures like Neuheusler. Um, tried to recreate this so-called conspiratorial milieu that they had lived in in the Third Reich. Um, uh, to what extent do you think that influenced him? And could you also just speak about this um, concept that you discuss in the book at several points?
1: Yeah, um, it, it's a really terrific observation that you make. And it's um, Neuhoesler had lived for years um, – Essentially, operating in the underground, um, he maintained his position, but he was constantly on the lookout. For um, his phone was tapped, and he realized pretty quickly that he was going to have to um, subvert this constant oversight that was there. And so, if you're in this kind of an underground, you quickly develop a whole series of tools and repertoire to make yourself look as inconspicuous as possible, um, and to the spirit continued um, long afterwards, um, simply the distortion of documents in a way is something that if you were writing documents, writing letters in the 1930s, and you were aware that they were likely to be, uh, to be intercepted, your, your mail was constantly being read, you would have to be extremely careful. And this, this way of modus operandi continued for several decades.
0: All right. Um, that might be an interesting uh, provide an interesting point at which to jump into the the second chapter of the book. Now, this is a chapter that I uh, I think I've you know that I really greatly admired, and I've actually seen you present on some of the material from this chapter at conferences in the past. It was very rewarding to to read it in the in the monograph. And in chapter two, you analyze how historical debates about the Nazi past became intertwined with the politics of the Christian Democratic Union as well as larger debates about church and society. So this is returning to some of the major arguments of the book that you talked about earlier. Specifically here, you review the ways that the history of the Reichskonkordat became consequential for a constitutional court case about denominational schools decided in 1956. So I think there's a, a really a lot to unpack here, Mark, and um, the audience might need a little bit of context to understand uh, really all that you're doing in this chapter. So I thought first, Uh, you might inform everyone a little bit about the history of the concordat of 1933 and why it was a subject of such controversy to begin with before we even get to the court case.
1: Sure. The the rice concordat was a, treaty that was signed um, on July 20th, 1933 by representatives of Hitler gov- Hitler's government. And um, The person who was there for the ceremony was the notorious Franz von Papen, uh, one of the architects of Hitler's rise to power, uh, gaining power in 1933. And from the Vatican side, the leading person was of course Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pope Pius XII. And This particular treaty, um, it did quite a number of things. It was something that the Church had long aspired to, um, and it was very loosely modeled on the Lateran Accord signed between Mussolini's government uh, and the Vatican in the late 1920s. And what it essentially did is it, it was the Church's way, they wanted for a long time, of guaranteeing certain things. They wanted to have, for instance, a guarantee to what were called Schulen, and there's really no English equivalent for this. I translated in the book as denominational schools, but these were essentially public schools funded by the state that nonetheless were at least ideally, um, exclusively confessional in their makeup. So they would have ideally a Catholic curriculum, or it could be a Protestant curriculum if they were Protestant schools, but a Catholic curriculum, a set of Catholic teachers. Um, They could include priests. They could include monks. They could include nuns. They could include Jesuits. Um, And the curriculum would ideally be a Catholic curriculum. And this was something they had long wanted, but the politics of the Weimar Republic had never allowed them to get this realized. Um, it also had not allowed them to sign Concord, a national Concord out with the Vatican. There were too many people opposed. The communists were opposed, the liberals were opposed, and the social democrats were opposed, all for ideological reasons. They wanted a strict separation or a stricter stup- separation in church and state. And so the church's stance on this was one that simply ran against their most fundamental beliefs in the fact that you should have ideally uh, a strong separation in the educational um, realm, even if you are going to allow religious instruction in schools. So this is the background. In the Concordat, um, there was a provision there that guaranteed the right to these particular schools. And there were other provisions in there, too. They promised to allow the Catholic organizations of the Faraina to continue to exist, But there was a price, and the price for this was essentially the retreat of the church from politics. The church would essentially deactivate itself politically. And, of course, this was a stab at the Catholic Center Party, which just several weeks before the signing of the Concordat had dissolved itself, facing tremendous pressure from the Nazis. And, of course, the Concordat was violated almost immediately by the Nazis. They didn't live up to many, if not most, of the terms. And this is your background for this particular, um, for the dispute um, that was to follow. And what triggered the dispute about the Concordat after 1945, it was the work towards a new West German constitution. Um, that was eventually then put in place. Um, work was going on in 48, 49. And one of the things that the Catholic Church had wanted in the new constitution was a provision that would guarantee the right to these Bikenton the or denominational schools. Here, too, their attempts foundered um, against the opposition from the liberals and the social democrats who didn't want anything to do with these. Um, and so the church, having failed to get this into the constitution, and actually several, at least one of the bishops threatened to call on Catholics to withhold their support for this new constitution unless this provision for the schools was in there. The fallback option was to insist on the validity of the Rice Concordat from 1933. This opened up a can of worms because it first opened up the question of which treaties from the Nazi era were still valid. The Americans had, and, the, and the British had declared most of the treaties signed by the Third Reich to be invalid, but they had swaffled on the case of the Rice Concordat. This was somehow left open. And so the church's fallback option was to say the Rice Concordat from um, 1933 is still valid. And therefore, we can have these confessional schools. And this is what triggered the whole fight, because there were a number of state governments who wanted nothing to do with these, and were determined to either put restrictions on the ones that already existed, or to make it very difficult to create new ones. And several of the German states, the state of Bremen, especially the state of Lower Saxony, but also the state of Hesse, which were run by the SPD, dominated by the SPD. These were the ones who made it their task to counter the church's efforts on the question of the schools. And one of the leading figures is another colorful character. Was an SPD figure, a leader of the state of Hesse. His name was Georg August Sin, um, and he was a dogged opponent of the Nazi regime, um, had suffered also in the Third Reich, like many others. And he was the one determined to turn the state of Hesse into something of an incubator um, for Adenauer's critics. He wanted to make the state kind of like the anti-Adenauer state, make it a laboratory for SPD government. And so he made a task then to oppose these schools. And he found... Willing comrade in arms in the state of Lower Saxony. So, this is the whole start. Um, And it was pretty clear um, from the early, from the get go, that the question of the validity of the Rice Concordat and, in turn, of the schools would wind up being litigated. And it was indeed litigated. I think they all knew it. They began commissioning lawyers. The church began commissioning lawyers in 1949 to prepare for this. You would wind up going to Germany's highest ranking court, um, the Constitutional Court. Um, and indeed, indeed, it was the series of hearings in June um, 1956 about the validity of this treaty.
0: Yeah, so why don't you tell us, Mark, a little bit about what, uh, what happened in 1956 and how things in many ways got so out of hand.
1: There was a long lead up to this. I need to go back in time a couple years to, to answer this particular question. One of the other things that was taking place in the 1950s, there was a time kind of remarkably of some renewed confessional tensions between Catholics and Protestants. Um, not as extreme as the confessional tensions of, let's say, the 1870s during the Kulturkampf, but a lot of the old um, kind of, the German word is Feindbilder, sort of these, sort of the demonization of the confessional others. Some of these old tropes were resurrected in the 1950s. Um, and where there were some really staunch efforts, especially from some of the Catholics, to segregate themselves um, as much as possible from the Protestants. So there were debates of whether you could have confessionally segregated graveyards, um, confessionally – and, of course, confessionally segregated schools um, were uh, one of the flashpoints in this particular debate. And one of the problems, there, there, were, there were a number of pedagogical problems because some of the Catholic schools, they called them dwarf schools or um, were so small that you would have a one-room classroom for five or six grades with a very small number of students in them. And the students would sometimes have to walk several kilometers, if not more, to get there. So there are the allegations then that the Catholics were providing an inferior education for their for their children through these particular schools. Uh, And so in the debates that were breaking out, they were not only about the validity of the rice concordat, but pedagogical questions about the quality of these schools and also, interestingly enough, about the whole process of questions of segregation. Um, Brown versus. Board of Education was decided in 1954 by the US Supreme Court. And oddly enough, this actually featured into some of the discussions about confessionally segregated schools in Germany, particularly the claim that confession, if you take the Brown case, there's a famous line, um, racially segregated schools are inherently unequal. And that formulation was used in the debates about confessionally segregated schools. So this is your lead-up, confessional tensions that were really resuming with something of a vengeance. Um, And I think what also sparked these was the fact that the CDU was clearly in the driver's seat and was the most powerful of all the German political parties. And so there's a lot of resentment by Adenauer's and the CDU's adversaries who weren't um, holding power the way they had hoped. Where the story gets very fascinating is the debate before the court – wound up centering on the Rice Concordat and whether this was legally valid. Um, because it was declared to be legally valid, then you could turn to its provision upholding the confessional schools and use then that as your basis for um, for expanding this particular system of confessionally segregated schools. The kicker was the fact that the Rice Concordat, that its signing was made possible by a fairly obscure provision of the Enabling Act. This was the act signed, I believe, on March 23rd or March 24th of 1933, which gave Hitler basically full dictatorial powers. One of the provisions there allowed Hitler to sign treaties with foreign governments and in turn bypass the Reichstag, which would otherwise have had to ratify all of these treaties. And this is one of the reasons why a concordat was was not able to be signed in the 1920s. There was simply too much opposition. You never would have gotten the um, the votes in, in the Reichstag or in the parliament to pull this off. So it raised eyebrows that this Enabling Act was the vehicle by which the Rice concordat had been signed. And the timing here, I think, was very important because... The question started to arise, did Catholic center party leaders sign off on the Enabling Act as part of a quid pro quo for the rice concordat? Was there an unholy deal? And so it got all of the conspiracy theorists flying. So the question then that began to break out in these debates um, about the, about what was ostensibly about the validity of this Reich's Concordat was indeed a very different one. It was whether the center party, and by extension, the church, had played a major role in undermining the Weimar Republic and the German system of democracy at the time. So the question shifted. Was the church one of the major players in the destruction of liberal democratic values and norms? And so out of an ongoing political debate about confessional schools suddenly emerged a debate about the church's role for the, its responsibility for the collapse of the Weimar Republic and the consolidation of the Nazi state.
0: Uh, Mark, uh, you refer to this uh, frequently in the text as the so-called linkage thesis. And uh, as you describe the role that it played in the 50s. Um, It might also be helpful to the audience to to share sort of what the um, actual scholars, scholarly consensus about whether or not there was a linkage thesis is sort of after further research had been done.
1: This is actually an ongoing debate within the profession, and it became the subject of a series of charge debates that I, also, I write about in my last chapter um, between the Catholic church, Catholic historian Konrad Repkin and the Protestant church historian Klaus Shoulder. But it also reappears in some of the scholarship from the 2000s where this argument has been resurrected. Um, the Is there a scholarly consensus? Um, I would say there's probably not a consensus um, that would be shared by everybody. Um, However, there exists no direct evidence, no direct written evidence that this quid pro quo indeed took place. There's nothing to make that case. The only thing making this up uh, that would allow this case to be made is either circumstantial evidence or conjecture.
0: But nonetheless, it became so central to this trial in nineteen fifty six so I'm sorry I interrupted you you might want to return then to the
1: to the narrative, yeah. I mean, it's if you wanted to make the case that there was a quid pro quo, um, you could make the case that the absence of written documentation is not the ultimate guarantee of how um, – the ultimate communicator of what actually took place, given how many documents had to be destroyed. You look at the center party's beleaguered position right around – during this debate um, where – Delegates are being assaulted um, by SA men, um, and it's pretty clear that they would not have wanted to have had a lot of these things written down. So if you wanted to make the case for this linkage argument, you could argue that. But again, we don't have the evidence. And so um,
0: maybe you could uh, then share with us how um – this case was decided. And if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the chapters where you sort of talk uh, a little bit about this uh, boomerang effect for the church where their own um, aggression and how they want to litigate uh, and shape the Catholic past sort of backfires on them and causes the debate uh, to go in directions that they didn't intend.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a thank you for raising that. Um, the outcome of the courts, I mean, the, the court's decision, um, it was one that took, I think, the Catholic leadership aback. Um, on the one hand, they were thrilled with the first part of the court's decision, which affirmed the validity of the Rice Concordat. Uh, however, they were much less thrilled with the second part, which said yes, the Rice Concordat is valid. However. Education under the basic law and under German principles of federalism is a state and not a federal issue. And so that allowed then the restrictions that many of the individual states had put on these confessional schools to continue to, uh, to remain in effect. So it was a very mixed verdict um, for the Catholics Defenders of this particular treaty, but beyond that it really the boomerang effect was this to wage this battle before the court Both the defenders and the critics of the rice concordat had to assemble research teams of scholars of lawyers of jurists and also of historians uh, to research the history um, of the concordat's origins and They began, essentially networks were formed, and this is what I spend a lot of my time describing in the book, and these were networks that once formed continue to exist in certain ways, in some cases for dozens of years. And they essentially this whetted the appetite um, for piqued interest in the church's past. And even when some of the defenders ...of the church's past and its role in the Reichskonkordat, published their work. Their work was seized upon by church critics to argue the opposite, that the church in turn bore responsibility for the calamity of 1933... And that um, that, of
0: course, uh, is is one of the things that really helps to answer the question with which you open the book uh, about why the Catholic Church over time received so much more heat than the Protestant Germany. And interestingly, one of your conclusions is that it was the church's own um, sort of, uh, you know, hardcore commitment to uh, organizing around these issues that made it so explosive.
1: That's that's right, and what also happened too—it's—it it's kind of, was a sort of a snowball effect. Um, if you just take the go back to the Rice Concordat, one of the things that was unearthed was a secret provision in there that was talking about a military chaplaincy in the event of German, or in the likely event of German rearmament. And this was discovered on the heels of what had been an extremely vitriolic argument in the German parliament about West German rearmament and the creation of a West German army, the Bundeswehr. And there were parallel debates that were going on about the role of a Catholic chaplaincy within this West German army. And so this discovery then played into the hands of critics. Some of them were East German communists. Some of them were Western scholars. Some of them were Catholic. Many of them actually were Catholic opponents of the church's own position on rearmament, in favor of rearmament. And they used this finding um, to make the case That the church, and this would would have been one of its sins, and they use a very highly, highly moralistic argument, its sins lay in the church's support for what they called Hitler's predatory wars. And that becomes the subject then of another chapter. Uh, so how questions of rearmament then featured in these ongoing debates about the church's past, and it required them to start excavating documents about what the Catholic Church, about its support or lack thereof, for Hitler's program of rearmament and, above all, his wars against the the Catholics in Poland and then again, of course, against the Soviet Union. Great. Um, and
0: the, the book is really so rich and as you move through several of the chapters, there are just so many uh, I think chapter two is just one example of the uh, sort of you know, very, very layered nature of each sort of case study and controversy that you look at. You certainly look at some, how after the trial 56 inspired some young left-wing Catholics to deepen uh, some of their criticisms of the church. You look at, you know, an American scholar, uh, Gordon Zahn, you know, who becomes – comes to to Germany and does a lot of critical – winds up doing a lot of critical research about the Concordat as well. Uh, You talk about, um, you know, several debates, but the one um, issue that I uh, have to – ask you to share with the audience about is the um, explosive play uh, entitled The Deputy that was performed in Berlin, I believe, first in 1963. And it really created quite the firestorm. And it also, um, which is very odd for a play, in some ways, seems to play this role in the historiography of the Catholic Church, Pius XII, the Holocaust, because a lot of more recent histories frequently cite the start of the debate of actually being this play. Um, So uh, I was wondering if you could describe for the audience the play's origins and impact and, you know, uh, what, what what happened with this play in the 1960s?
1: Yeah, I'm actually writing a follow-up article on precisely this topic. I'll mention the article briefly in a moment. Uh, the author of the play was at the time an unknown um, house editor for the Bertelsmann conglomerate, um, and they had a Book of the Month club. He was a young Protestant. He was born in 1931 in the town of Eschwege, which was right up is in eastern Hesse, right up against the border. His name is Wolf Hohut, uh, whose name literally translates as "high hat um, into English and he came up with the idea about writing a play about. Pope Pius XII's alleged silence. He came on this idea completely on his own. He was a voracious reader. He had a abiding interest in history. He's still alive, um, lives in Berlin, um, actually in a building just right next to the Holocaust uh, kind of monuments in Berlin. And he came up with the idea on his own. Um, right now, th- there was an article that was published, I believe, back in 2007 um, by a Romanian intelligence official who alleged that Hohud had was the recipient of documents stolen out of the Vatican um, by Eastern Bloc intelligence officials um, said that this was part of a larger plot put together and orchestrated by Khrushchev. Um, I found absolutely no evidence to support this, and I'm actually writing a piece that's going to attempt to refute um, this entire set of claims um, that were put together. Um, Ho, who came up with the idea on his own, Um, but what's interesting about his story? um, He carried out his research for it primarily using libraries and books that had just become available. There was something, uh, there were some early histories into the Holocaust that were being published mostly outside of Germany um, by a number of scholars, uh, names like Leon Poliakov, Joseph Wolf, uh, Reitlinger. Hochut drew on this literature, and he also had an abiding hatred for both Konrad Adenauer as well as for Pope Pius XII, um, who died in 1958. And he died, when, after he died, Kogut was just enraged by some of the tributes that were written for him um, upon his death. And then the following year, he managed to get a three-month sabbatical um, from his job at Bertelsmann. And he went down to Rome to try to interview um, as many Vatican officials that he could, um, as well as sort of take in the whole scene of the Vatican so he could better... Paint a picture um, of, and come up with a setting for what the actual, the physical landscape of the place looked like for his play. So he went down to Rome. He interviewed. He was able to. He knew very little in the way of foreign languages, so he was relying on people who were native German speakers. And he interviewed two people: um, Alois Hudal, a notorious right-wing brown bishop um, who we now know was one of the architects of these rat lines that was smuggling former, former Nazis um, and war criminals across either the ocean to South America or in some cases the Middle East. And he also interviewed a man named Bruno Wustenberg, um, who had both of them had abiding grudges against Pope Pius XII. The interviews actually revealed relatively little, they simply confirmed what the um, Hochut had suspected that Pope Pius XII hadn't issued a ringing statement denouncing the genocide of the Jews, but that was all that he needed. He went to work writing the play while he was in Rome and then had a final version of a finished version of the play put together by 1961. It was a complicated story. His initial publisher, Bertelsmann, rejected it. Um, it was a subsidiary called Gritten and Lüning. And by something of a deus ex machina was picked up by the Rovort Publishing Company based just outside of Hamburg, which was a left liberal or left-leaning publishing company. And they agreed not only to publish it, but to give it a stage at the stage of the Free People's Theater in West Berlin. And the person who was going to be directing it was a highly esteemed director and former communist named Erwin Piscato, who had gained fame in the 1920s for his documentary theater. And... The play already before its premiere on february twentieth, nineteen sixty three, was generating headlines. And this is where one of the uh, development of the major arguments of the book, in many ways, it was the church's defenders who did more to promote the criticisms of their adversaries. And when the play was premiered, I mean there were there were some protests, there were denunciations in the press, but what happened then was that The story became not just the play, which was fairly incendiary, but it was the church's response to the play. And so the church's criticisms of Hofut and the tactics that it used against its critics became as much the story as to what actually happened during the 1930s and 1940s. And so one of the arguments that I have in the book is that these debates, especially in the 1960s, were transformed from debates about the church's past and debates over civil liberties and about the role of the church in the public sphere. Well,
0: that's, um, you know, it's really uh, a fascinating chapter of what is really and truly a fascinating and compelling book. And given how well, uh, the story of the deputy uh, fits in with your overall arguments, I think that is a a very good place um, to start to bring our interview to an end because we really have taken up a lot of your time so far today, Mark. But before I let you go, I do have to ask what has become the traditional final question on New Books Network podcasts. And that question is, what are you working on now?
1: Working on... Three articles, two edited volumes, and I'm starting to, the edited volumes, one is a volume for undergraduates, which is almost done, called The Churches and the Nazis, and another edited volume called Germany and the Confessional Divide, um, 1871 to 1989, and I'm starting to give thought for the next major uh, monograph down the road. And what I'm considering, uh, there are two possibilities for that, one is either a biography of a Um, German-Jewish lawyer who fled Nazi Germany, his name is Robert Kempner, and then returned um, with the Americans as one of the prosecutors in the Nuremberg war war crimes trials. That is one possibility. The other project I'm considering is a work that is going to look at the impact of allegations of guilt in Germany in the 1920s, a much broader, much more synthetic work um, from the impact of the allegations of guilt after the Treaty of Versailles past the Second World War, and looking at how the way in how the way in which they were framed shaped certain responses and shaped certain discourses um, on the part of Germans, many of whom were still fairly nationalist in their orientations. So that's a possible project down the road.
0: Wow. Well, you're certainly not taking it easy. And uh, that, that final project idea in many ways seems to jump off of this book really nicely, given how one of your conclusions of this book is that no matter how much empirical evidence each side of the debate about the Catholic past seemed to heap up to support their arguments, they never really seem to convince anybody of anything. And so getting more deeply into some of the you know, cognitive psychology behind these things, uh, sounds like it could be a really fascinating project.
1: That's, and that's where it'll be going. So.
0: (laughs) All right, Mark. Well, um, I really uh, appreciate all of your time today. And, uh, I would really encourage our listeners to consider, uh, purchasing a copy of Mark's book, ordering a copy of this book for their library or checking a copy of the book out of their library, because you really won't be disappointed. It combines uh, good scholarship with accessible writing in a very unique way. So the book is uh, by Mark Edward Ruff, The Battle for the Catholic Past in Germany, 1945 to 1980. And thank you very much, Mark.
1: Thank you very much, Michael.
0: You have been listening to a podcast on the New Books Network podcasting network. This is the New Books in German Studies channel. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, your host. Today we interviewed Mark Edward Ruff. His book is The Battle for the Catholic Past in Germany, 1945 to 1980, published with Cambridge University Press in 2017. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.